been nearly a year since our last podcast. I mean, the time's just flown by. It has, and think of everything that's happened in that year. Yeah. It hasn't been a great one for choral music, I have to say. No, well, the other day in the cathedral, um, following probably an intense period of sanitising, I found that I knelt down on the needle and just went whoop, straight off onto that the That sometimes happens actually with the organ benches. Oh, really? It's quite it's rare like- that they get cleaned, but if they do, I've had this with, unbeknownst to me, someone, usually actually one of the purveyors of said organ, has come in and to just give it a quick spruce up, perhaps they've been about to show bit of a rub down. some other people the, the organ. Mm. And, and you know, often I'm in a hurry, so I'll sort of just alight on the bench, only to slide off the other end. <laughs> it's almost like the instrument doesn't doesn't want to be played. Indeed, it's not what you want just before mm. a service. It's not it's not good for poise. So, how what then happens when you pick yourself up off the floor? Well, one likes to think that one has retained one's dignity, but well, who can say if that's ever the case? Mm. Mm. And now, of course, because. Uh, the choir isn't processing in at the beginning of mass or other services, but instead they they arrive silently on the sanctuary <laughs> in the current uh, situation, that you will have plenty of witnesses for that sort of uh, <laughs> event. Yeah, well, that, that would be true. Mm. Yes, that's right. Mm. Let's hope that we don't have to keep that one going for too much longer. I think um, we'll see, I mean, who knows what will happen at any stage in this uh, current situation. But um, if things continue as they are, then I hope that maybe next term, so that will be early July, um, we might start processing and singing again. Mm. But it just seems sensible at the moment not not to have done that. We've returned to the sanctuary. Um, with, oh, that was uh, significant. It was. So now the, the choir is standing as close as it ever did, uh, both um, to the you know the the constituent members um and uh to clergy and other ministers in the sanctuary so we're we're back there where we ought to be um but it just seemed that walking through the nave whilst singing which as as we know is one of the most dangerous things you can do one Did of you most, know that, one of the most dangerous things you is, can do is, as well as dancing at weddings uh, also right out yeah that we can't abide either um Although I have to say, isn't it interesting that we're currently um, experiencing, well, that is to say the good people of Victoria seem to be experiencing the fallout um, from what happens when one hotel room door in um, a quarantine hotel is open for all of 18 seconds. Mm, Even hundreds of miles away in Adelaide. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yes, exactly, in in Adelaide. and uh, it's possible for for the virus to you know go from one room to the other in 18 seconds between hotel room doors and i believe although i'm not sure it hasn't been reported that neither occupant of either room was singing or dancing at the time if the virus can can be transmitted from one hotel room to t'other um in 18 seconds just by opening a door it really does seem that whatever might happen from singing you know well isn't isn't the jig up yeah, I mean, certainly singing and walking at the same time, which I've always had questions about, <laughs> just as a sort of viable practice. Um, well, we've shown it's viable. It is perfectly viable. Mm. It's, yeah. It works well and it's good. And, and uh, I think it's actually a, a really, there's a theological aspect to it when the choir 
um, begins mass, um, especially on a weekday at St. Mary's, because we don't have to sing the superfluous and unnecessary English hymn. Um, we walk in singing part of the mass text, that introit text, which is actually there provided in the missal, um, which is to say, you know, the, the, the book that has all the words that must be said or included uh, in, in the mass. The introit is one of those texts, nearly, although not always biblical. Um, and uh, that's what we sing when we walk in. And that way, um, that text, which, as I say, is integral, actually physically moves through the assembled community. It's not just something which, um, you know, is sung as a piece of wallpaper music or incidental. Mm. It's so not it's just a nice to have. Yeah. That it's usually not always, as I said, but it's the word of God um, being sung, moving through the assembled community. I think there's something to be said for that. It's an opportunity for the word to be alive and active. Indeed. Alive and active. That that logos is on the move. Right. Mm. I mean, that certainly makes sense and it's very picturesque yeah but at the moment of course as we say you aren't walking and singing at the same We're time not. and that means that i have great difficulty on a sunday morning um because the choir doesn't process in and therefore the procession takes less time i'm finding it very difficult to fit the processional hymn and the introit yeah which has meant that more often than not i've had to um arrest the processional hymn sooner than I would have liked um, mm. in order that we can we can include everything. So that, I have to say, is uh, causing me a little bit of grief at the moment. Mm. No, that's understandable. I mean, the procession is at the moment really quite short. Yeah, those... long enough to have perhaps just the introit. But then mm. there are those of the members of the congregation that would miss the hymn and I wouldn't want to deprive them. Now, as I say, it has been a little while since our last gets together to record. Um, a lot has happened since then. Of course, we've, we're almost on the time of the great festival of Iofi. Um That's true, yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I've uh, been looking at uh, all the furniture sales that are on. All right. Mm. Have you sent your cards? <laughs> no, no, I haven't yet, but... <laughs> yeah, you will. You'll yeah, get around to it. That's right. Yeah, good. Um, but one of the slightly more religious feasts, which has already passed, is Holy Week and Easter. Yes. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Now, obviously, it was now a little while ago. Um, but something that we've not talked about before is the singing of the Passion during Holy Week. Now, as I understand it, the Passion is sung in St. Mary's Cathedral, Sydney, uh, on Palm Sunday, and then again on Good Friday. Is that, is that that's right? That's right, yeah. The Missal sets out that, that the liturgical action on Good Friday, the Passion every year is from St. John. Yes. Uh, whereas for the Palm Sunday, it rotates between That's the other right. three evangelists. And it's interesting that um, in many respects, the new, which is to say current liturgical norms, mm. um, have increased the amount of scripture that is heard um, actually both in the office and, and at Mass. Right, throughout the year. Throughout the year. Yeah. Um, it has actually limited the occasions of reading of the complete Passion. So before the liturgical reforms of the 1960s, um, the Sunday preceding Palm Sunday was actually known as Passion Sunday or the first Sunday of the Passion. 
So fifth week of Lent, um, which is when we still in, well, at least at St. Mary's and many other great churches, um, would view that for that fifth Sunday of Lent as the beginning of so-called Passion Tide. It's also the first Sunday or the, the day on which all the um, crosses and images in the church are veiled in purple. Mm. And it used to be that this first Sunday of the Passion, um, that the Passion story, the narrative would be the gospel at Mass. Um, and then in Holy Week itself, um, there were, the Passion would be read um, on on different days. So yes, it's true that John would always end up being the Passion on Friday, um, but there would have been an opportunity to hear the other Passion narratives on other days. But mm. of course now all that's changed because... So now we wait uh, year by year rather than day by day. We wait year by year to hear the three other evangelists' accounts on Palm Sunday. Yeah. So we have this slightly confusing terminology for, for that Sunday. It is now, I think if I've got this right, officially known as Palm Sunday of the Passion of the Lord. Yes, a lot of genitives there. Yes, that's right. Mm. Um, but as I was saying at St. Mary's, you for several years now sing the Passion uh on both occasions. That's right. Is that right? And you, you now um, are in a position to sing all three Palm Sunday Passions. Is that right? Yes. Yes, indeed. And the way it gets sung uh, is with uh, a narrator uh, and an other singer sing yes. singing all the other bit parts. And then generally a deacon, I think, taking the role of uh, the, the Christ words. That's right. I mean, this is a totally unique well, which is to say, it, it, traditionally, this is a unique situation. Right. Um, it may be true that in some parishes around the world, perhaps more often in um, settings such as school masses and that sort of thing, mm. that uh, the gospel reading might be, for want of a better term, acted out. Yep. Um, that's absolutely forbidden. There, well, indeed. <laughs> there, there, is, there is nothing that, that says that that is a permissible practice within the liturgy, except for the Passion of Our Lord. And this mm. is an ancient tradition where um, the narrative is divided between usually three, well, at, let's say at least three um, persons, a narrator, um, another that um, reads the words of Christ. And then the third person would um, supply all the other voices. Mm. Um, for example, Peter or Pilate. Mm -hmm. These other the characters. That's right. Mm. Then, of course, that um, the division of, of the text, um, we add to that um, recitation, chant um, or, or music. And it's uh, mainly set to Gregorian chant or very simple recitation. Um, but, of course, there's an other um, element here, and that is the response of the crowd. And uh, the tradition that has developed in the Roman Catholic Church is for the crowd part to be set for a choir to sing. Right. So composers such as um, Thomas Lewis de Victoria, um, also William Byrd, and, and many others have set that crowd 
um, dialogue to um, polyphony. Now, all of the composers that uh, have done this that I'm aware of, that's not to say there aren't others, um, did so before the liturgical changes of the 1960s, and so they're set to the Passion Text in Latin, which means that um, what we use at St. Mary's in order that the Passion can be sung in English, and I, I have to concede I think it's important that the Passion should be sung in English, mm. um, we have, well, I, have adapted um, Victoria's polyphony with its Latin words to the English text that we use. And that in itself creates a number of um, challenges. The, the, the way the um, scansion and the syntax and, and, uh, uh, and the accents... Yeah, the shape of the phrase, that sort of thing. It's completely yeah. different. Mm. Um, and it has meant that I've had to pay some attention to the English translation mm-hmm. that's used. So have you, are there a, a points where you've had to move notes around and that sort of thing? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, right. But it's possible most of the time to preserve, well, a, a high proportion of Victoria's um, melodic and harmonic structure. Yeah. But it is it does have to be adapted to some extent. Sure. Um, so uh, initially I, I looked at um, the translation of the scriptures that is used in the liturgy in this part of the world and that is the from the jerusalem bible interestingly the jerusalem bible was first created the, the, this english translation um really more a, a, as a study bible than anything else certainly not with the intention that it would be read out at mass mm. every day and i find it Interesting to note that the Jerusalem Bible is actually a translation from French. I think uh, I'm right about this. No, it, I mean, that is a common misconception. As I understand it, it the French was used to help uh, inform the English translation. Oh, I see. But it was, in fact, a translation from the Vulgate. So it's a translation from Latin? Uh, or maybe or not from the Vulgate, no, from the Hebrew. From Hebrew. Excuse me, yes, okay, yeah, uh, yeah, Hebrew yeah. and Greek, yeah. There, there is some... Um, uh, interaction with with a French translation. Yeah, the Bible in d- the d- Jerusalem kind of predates the English language Jerusalem Bible. I see. Um, and but I think yes, I grew up learning that the Jerusalem Bible had been translated from the French, and so therefore it was a sort of second order translation. But I actually learned a couple of years ago that it that that's not the case. It's just one of those. Sort of That's interesting. I old mean, wives' tales. I, I don't know enough about the intricacies of translation to know whether or not it's second order. But what I would say is that although we've become, well, Catholics that have heard it, in my case, all my life, um, we've become used to it. I don't find it mostly very artful or elegant. Right. Um, there are a number of... Um, but as you say, we have got used to hearing it at Mass because it's been in our lectionaries for so long. That That's very true. Yeah. Um, we've got used to um, certain aspects of it, but there are some things that jar every time I hear them. Mm. Uh, in one of the Psalms, to hear the word dung heap, for now, example. Are the Psalms that we hear the Jerusalem Bible or are they the Grail? Well, that's, <laughs> that, that is true that actually in... Um, the lectionary, the translation used for the Psalms is, is a separate deal altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, one thing that I can say is that often they're just 
aren't enough syllables in the translation of the Jerusalem Bible um, to set elegantly to music that was originally intended for Latin. Mm. I might just, sorry, just stop you there and, and give you the information from Mr. Oh, yeah. Wikipedia, um, which is basically says that there there was a, the French Bible de, de Jerusalem was published in 1956, following an encyclical by Pope Pius XII in 1943, um, encouraging Catholics to translate the scriptures from the Hebrew and Greek texts. Um, and then the French, the, the Wikipedia then says, this French translation served as the impetus for an English translation in 1966, the Jerusalem Bible. For the majority of the books, the English translation was a translation of the Hebrew and Greek texts. In passages with more than one interpretation, the interpretation chosen by the French translators is generally followed. Oh, I see. Yes, so, yes, okay. So that's, as it were, the Hebrew and Greek are read in light of the French. Well, impetus is a good descriptor yes. there. So, okay. Um... Anyway, for when it comes to setting Latin, um, or, or rather the music that had originally been set to Latin, the Jerusalem Bible doesn't provide a very happy um, uh, medium. No. Uh, however, the uh, there are actually two, as far as I'm aware, um, translations that are authorised for use in the liturgy in the English-speaking world, the other being the revised standard version. Mm -hmm. um, now, when I say it's authorised, I think, and I, I'm on slightly shaky ground here because I'm not entirely sure of exactly how this works, but I believe that the RSV was authorised for use in the English-speaking world and that that authorisation has never been rescinded. I see. Um but it, what um, do you know off the top of your head what translation it is that they use in North America? I don't, but it's another one again. It is another one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yes, they, they have their own American translation for use in, in the lectionary. Um, and it's true that there. I don't think there's ever been an official, which is to say um, a, a version of the lectionary published by a bishop's conference, an English-speaking bishop's conference, that uses the um, RSV. But there certainly are churches and, and some prominent churches that use that RSV Catholic edition translation for the lectionary passages. There's nothing um, magic about the collecting of all those passages into an authorised lectionary. It's the mm. passages themselves that are important. Mm. So um, we, uh, St Mary's, have, have used the translation from the RSV Catholic edition um, and that fits the Latin much better. But right. people are sometimes surprised that it isn't the text that they're more used to hearing. Or that they've got in, in front of them in their app or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what I would say is though it does retain several um, cadences of, of cultural resonance that mm -hmm. I think are, are very important. Um, you know, at the death of our Lord, um, I think I've got this right, the, uh, the translation from the RSV is, and he gave up his spirit. Yes. Um, I, I don't know what the Jerusalem Bible says. It's probably something like, and he carked it. You know, it's it's often so inelegant at those moments and it doesn't make usually any attempt um, to echo some of those things, which, are, you know, let's be honest, they often have come uh, from the so-called authorised version or the um, King James Bible. Mm. So that's that's interesting. So, that, so you have had to do a significant amount of work in preparing 
the text and indeed therefore adjusting. So you, you, is it always Vittoria that you sing for your choral parts? We do. So Vittoria um, made settings of the crowd parts of the Passion for all four um, evangelists. However, um, <laughs> the... <coughs> The sections of the of the Bible that are now appointed for use um, on Palm Sunday differ. Right. So nowadays, thanks to the great um, you know opening up of the Word, um, it's been broken open after the Second Vatican Council. Um, more of the Passion is required to be. Um, proclaimed. Right. Or at least that's the first option, including bits that Victoria didn't sit. Right, I see. So you have to then become a little bit more creative and borrow from... Other bits. Other bits, that's right, in order yeah, to, to, give, all sort of to give you... The, stitched together. So, um, whilst I might put on the music list that it's The Passion According to St. Luke uh, by Victoria, um, it, it really isn't in any way. So it's, <laughs> it's Thomas Wilson after Victoria. Perhaps. Right, yeah. fascinating. Um, and then um, the actual performance, for want of a better word, of, of the Passion, as I say, you have two members of the choir who are then joined by a um, uh, a non... someone who doesn't sing nearly as regularly as they do. That's that, right. So the narrator, who has the, the most singing to do... There is a lot of singing getting, there, yeah. Getting through all of that narrative um, is... Are both those parts for tenors normally? Well, the narrator could be a baritone. Mm-hmm. Um, most of it uh, recites at a sort of mid mid range. Mm-hmm. Um, however, curiously, at the end of the Passion, after the death of our Lord, um, when the the story goes on to relate um, those things that occurred uh, after, um, so um, the uh, putting of the body into, into, the, the, into tomb. the tomb. Yeah. Um, and the bringing of spices and all of that. Um, a completely different tone is used. I think it, I'm right in saying it's a, a very ancient form of melodic recitation. And that goes a bit higher than anything else that the narrator has to sing. Yeah. So it is helpful if it's somebody with a higher voice. Yeah, who is capable of hitting those notes. And then, again, I think it's interesting that the other singer who, who takes all the other parts as we said such as Peter Pilot and indeed the servant girl it's quite funny because it means that that, that singer can end up basically having conversations with himself yeah yes yeah. that's true uh, just through the narrator but yes well the chant for all of those parts is very high right it's always very high and I, I wonder whether well I think there are a number of possible reasons why that is but one of them I think must have something to do with the the slightly highly emotionally charged um, state of all these people all those people at different times then the third person of course is um, our lord and those parts are always sung by a cleric so um, a deacon or a priest yeah and all the music that our lord sings is comparatively low because he was as we know quite a serious person Right. Perhaps that's why. I, I'm not sure. Right. Um, but uh, the narrator always sings the same sequence before the Our Lord parts start. That's right. 
Uh, it always occurs to me that it's very helpful, though, for your for your clerics who have you'd had to rehearse with that they've basically got the same the same intro every single time to pitch off. Yes, that, that, that I'm sure that's all you know by by so, design. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yes, the the preference is I, I would say that a deacon would take that. It's a little bit like the gospel at a normal mass that isn't Palm Sunday or, or, or the celebration on Good Friday, mm. um, that that's one of the things that a deacon would ordinarily do in preference to a priest. Yeah, if a deacon is there, um, yes. And uh, I, I remember having a conversation with our archbishop when he had first come to Sydney about um, the the singing of the Passion and, and he wondered whether that was something he ought to do. Mm. And... Um, the the best explanation I could come up with is that actually I felt um, that his role during the Passion was to hear the Passion text along with the congregation and everyone else um, whilst it is proclaimed um, by the ordinary minister of the of the, the gospel, which it is, which is a deacon. Mm. What a, a convincing person you must be, Thomas. <laughs> well, one tries. Mm. Actually, there is... Um, uh, a new translation of the English lectionary, which is to say all the readings for, for every Mass uh, throughout the year, um, in the works. But there's been a lot of discussion amongst um, the various English-speaking bishops' conferences about which one to adopt. And I think it's likely that, we'll, uh, I think it's certain that the Australian bishops won't choose the same translation as the American bishops or the Canadian bishops mm. um, or the English bishops for that matter. Um, some have already made their decisions. Um, I think the Australian bishops possibly have made their decision, but the, the book itself has not been produced. But that is coming and it won't, whatever it is, it won't be exactly the same as what we've been used to. No, indeed. And that's why so many actual physical lectionaries all, all around the English-speaking world that is looking tattier and tattier. That's right. There's no point buying a new one because it's about to change. Yeah, indeed, if you can get hold of a, a new one of the mm. current current edition. Mm, it's a, it's a, certainly a problem and uh, we, you know, we, we, I don't think it's worth holding your breath. I just see. hope Dung Heap is out. Dung Heap? Mm. Yeah. Any others? <laughs> there probably are. I can't think of them right now, but no. I'm sure there are other things that I don't like. I always find it amusing when in the... Um, proclamation of the gospel um, the deacon says and our Lord said look <laughs> <laughs> mm. I'm not sure he did to be honest but, no. anyway. but he was speaking English we know <laughs> yeah, that of course we have that on good authority <laughs>
We have some questions, Thomas, from listeners. I mean, given how long the delay between episodes has been, you might have thought that we'd have more questions. <laughs> but it could be that everyone has been so concentrating on, you know, not getting sick. Must be that. Um, the first question is from um, an eagle-eyed mass attender who has noticed that um, occasionally, it was, in fact, it was quite frequent a couple of months ago, uh, one of your lay clerks appeared to be a, a lady clerk. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, um, as you know, the um, boys of the cathedral choir sing the treble part, the soprano part. Yep. Um, we often have some boys who sing the alto part. Yeah. But in order to bridge the sort of um, the sonic distance between um, a boy's alto voice and then the more mature voices of the tenors and basses, mm. we also use that peculiar sort of English creation of the countertenor. Right, yes, indeed. Uh, so um, like the choir of Westminster Cathedral, we have both boy altos and male adult alto singing in falsetto. Um, but there are not all that many uh, countertenors around, certainly not here in Sydney. Right. Um, we're lucky that we have some extremely good countertenors, um, but if they're not available, um, then uh, I would rather have, um, you know, very good female altos to, to sing with us. And we're lucky that uh, there are, an, are a number of excellent female altos available here in Sydney. Mm. So um, I'm very glad that they will join us on occasion. Mm. Um, if there's no particular reason why the the choir has to be all male. Um, I mean, perhaps there are um, fine um, female tenors and basses. I, I haven't heard one, but that doesn't say that doesn't mean they don't exist. Yep. Um, I would say that I would draw the line at having um, uh, a female soprano because actually in our choir, that is the job of the boys. Yeah. And to bring in an adult, I mean, the fact that it would be a female is irrelevant. To bring in an adult to do that, that's changing its fundamental nature of being something that children do. Mm. Um, I mean, and also you were talking, you used the phrase earlier, a sonic gap. And I'd say I suggest sure. that there is a sonic gap between sopranos and trebles. Sure, indeed, but yeah. but the the point is that the the treble line of of the choir is provided by children. Yep. And in our case, at the moment, that happens to be boys mm -hmm. because the school on site at the cathedral is a boys' school. Um, now, it may be that in the future it's possible to um, uh, find an arrangement that would make it possible for us to have a, a, a second treble line of girls. Now we would need a school solution that maybe either that girls would come to the cathedral school as well as the boys, or that we would find another school that would provide um, the same uh, experience for um, a treble line of girls that would exist alongside the, the boys choir. And they would sing with the adult altos, tenors, and basses as well. I think that would be a very good thing. But the point is they would also be children. Um, yes, interesting. So we don't have um, sopranos for that reason, except on special occasions when um, 
we're not we don't use the boys for whatever reason that they're on holiday or it just isn't is not possible for other reasons then we we don't call that the cathedral choir we call that the special service choir um and that's that's a different thing altogether however i don't feel the same when it comes to altos although we do have boy altos um that's that's a slightly um separate area than what i've been talking about when it when it comes to the treble line itself well it's a bit sort of liminal because, yeah, I mean, indeed. Yeah. yeah, that's right. You, and, you, I mean, you have countertenors as well. So, I mean, and what um, I want is the best musicians and singers um, available, and if, to make the best sound. Uh, that's yeah. right. And and as I said, um, if that's uh, if they're female, then so be it. Right. Good. Now, uh, another question has come in. Uh, you actually preempted it because you made reference to um, what goes on at Westminster Cathedral. Now, of course, Westminster Cathedral has been in the news somewhat for those who follow such things lately. And the questioner wonders if you've got uh, anything to say about that. Um, only that it must be so difficult at the moment for, well, any choirs uh, in other parts of the world, the UK, but also well, you could almost name any country. Mm. Um, we're very lucky here in Australia and New Zealand and possibly a few other places. Um, but I think that must be very difficult Um the Westminster Cathedral Choir, like um, most, if not all, the English cathedral choirs, um, has not been able to do very much. Although um, the lay clerks have been continuing the the choral liturgies there, I think at least on Sundays, but not the full complement. And, and they've had to do many of the same things that we did, but we didn't have to do it for very long, whereas they've been doing it for, for months. Yeah. Um, and they've only recently appointed a new master of music for Westminster Cathedral, um, who will um, take up that role in uh, the new academic year in the UK in September. Um, he's a very fine musician um, who's uh, made music in a variety of um, great churches in the UK, but most recently uh, as the organist of St. Paul's Cathedral. So he's only um, you know, going a short distance um, mm across the Thames. Not far. <laughs> no. Yes. And uh, anyway, so I think that's great news for Westminster Cathedral. And I hope that as the the situation normalises or, or improves in the UK, uh, that with the new director of music, they're going to have a great new start and, and beginning and uh, uh, continue to um, lead the Catholic musical, the serious Catholic musical world. Hmm. And finally, as they say, it's a question for both of us. But what our favourite uh, services from Holy Week and Easter actually are? <laughs> That's an interesting question. There are things to enjoy about all or most of the Holy Week services. What I'll do is I'll tell you, in a way, my favourite time. <laughs> After it's all over. <clears throat> well, possibly. Um, although I always find that sort of difficult to enjoy because I'm so tired. Yeah. Um, I really... This year, at least, and I've thought it in the past, find that time after the Good Friday liturgy to be quite extraordinary. Perhaps, actually, to use a word that, that you used earlier, it's a sort of liminal time. Mm. Most of the services, we get used to services either happening in the morning or the evening. Right. And even in Holy Week, that's pretty much the pattern. Sure. It's unusual to have a service at 3 p.m. Yeah. Um, but it's a pretty different day for so many reasons. And Good for Friday. us, it's it's yeah. it's a different day. It's also quite a big day. We have Stations of the Cross at 10 a.m. Yeah. 
Um, then the choristers have rehearsals. Um, they have lunch with the archbishop, which is, which is a big deal for them. Yeah. Um, we have rehearsals. We have the 3 p.m. service, which uh, is high pressure and uh, emotionally quite highly charged, but, well, for obvious reasons. Then I usually end up going home at about five uh, something or, or just before six. And everything is very quiet. There's something about that time after Good Friday. Um, I always make or attempt to make some sort of fish pie for myself. <laughs> what else would you have on, on Good Friday? No, indeed. Plenty of uh, lobster, prawn, I hope. Uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah. That's right. And uh, I like that time. It's a sort of eye of the storm in some ways because there's still Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday to come Absolutely. with all of that. Yeah. But equally you've gotten over Maundy Thursday. I don't like Maundy Thursday much. I have to say um, we have the chrism mass. A lot of cathedrals have the chrism mass on a different day mm. in Holy Week for would various you like reasons. That? I don't think I would in that I like doing it on the proper day and that's the day when it's supposed to be. And, mm. you know, I'm that sort of black and white individual. I sort of like to do yeah. what the proper thing, but I find it, quite a chore. I can imagine. Then the evening mass is a long one that finishes with a procession. We have to go outside. I hate singing outside. Um, it's got a lot of faff associated with it and a lot of music. And I, I don't find Morning Thursday easy. Um, so that time after Good Friday, I don't know. I, I find that quite special. Gosh. What about you? What's your favourite? Well, see, it's difficult to pin it down really, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I could be... Um, contrary and say oh I love the chrism mass I'm but, sure you do yeah that's actually not the case but um, I'm, I'm a big fan of your uh, tenebrae on Holy Saturday just because it is something quite unlike anything else through the liturgical year uh, I mean I know you say that uh, it's uh, following the pattern of the morning and e morning versus evening services but it's not like any other no, that's anything right. else that takes place in the cathedral at 10am yep um, but I also really do like the Easter Vigil. And I found that this year, so this year, um, as I think possibly in previous years, there were five Old Testament reason, uh, readings in the That's cathedral. That's correct. Which um, I, I, I didn't, you know, some people find that I think that the Easter Vigil drags a bit and gets a bit boring. And, you know, I can I can understand that, but I certainly didn't find that this year. And I found that the the rhythm of the whole ceremony certainly was quite enthralling. I'm very pleased to hear that. And I, I suspect um, if he listens that, that the dean of the cathedral, who's also um, uh, the sort of chief liturgist for the diocese, um, would be very pleased to hear that also. Mm. Um, well, I could tell him a thing or two about liturgy <laughs> and my thoughts thereon. Uh, your thoughts, yeah. Mm. Well, so I might presume to also. Uh, and in my <laughs> thoughts on the subject, I am not one of those that, well, I'm yet to be convinced by the Easter Vigil. Right. Um, but it's actually a relatively, I mean, it's a, it's a development since the reform, I mean, as part of the oh, reform. Oh, it's, it's a new idea. At least the, this idea of it being so important or as important as Easter Sunday. I mean, I, I find mm. that bizarre. You know, Easter Sunday is Easter Sunday and, and prefiguring it. Well, I thought we weren't supposed to do useless repetitions. I, I don't know. Um, I know it has its own character. Of course it does. And I'm not saying it's superfluous because it's obviously ancient in its you know, existence. Um, it's just the more we build it up as, as being as important as Easter Sunday, or in some cases it seems that it's 
build more highly than Easter Sunday. I, I don't get that. Mm. Um, it's the a vigil in the truest sense. It is waiting for something. Um, and then it has that baptismal character. Um, that's all very special and unique. I just don't know whether it needs to be built up to become an ever or to, be, or to become an increasingly um, important parish occasion or whether it's something that maybe can happen in a slightly quieter setting. I, um, that perhaps is, con- well, I'm sure that is controversial. Um, I mean, everything we say is controversial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, but it just seems that we're sort of saying, oh, we're having two Easter shebangs. Uh, I think... No, fair point. I mean, I, I came to the Easter Vigil and, and uh, not to Easter Sunday this year, partly actually out of um, deference because I didn't want to take the seat. Because, I mean, we are still in... Mm, in yes, in, we were restricted. Uh, ...under restrictions of uh, numbers that can be admitted. And admittedly in the cathedral, they're quite large, the numbers, but we know that high days and holy days... And we were... We were um, at capacity? Sort of, yes, I think so. Right. But may, I hope that next year I, I will be able to join you again on... Easter Sunday morning. I hope you'll be able to do both as well. <laughs>